Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees and Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. Uh, these are the stories of middle grade 11-year-old detective from genius inventor Banneker Bones and his cousin Ellicott Skullworth as they fly around on jetpacks and take on giant robot bees, alligator people, and a uh, untitled third nemesis to be uh, revealed in the near future. Uh, if you like me, you like the show, don't you want to know if I can write good news? You can find out for free. Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is available as a paperback and audiobook narrated by the exquisite David Radke. And the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So get yourself a copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Once you're hooked, come see me for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. Bring money. Uh, next time you're at your library, uh, if your library does not have a copy of these paperbacks or the audiobook, Go ahead and request that they get a copy. That way you can read it, and so can hopefully uh, anybody else there in your town. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I write horror novels such as the young adult novel All Together Now, A Zombie Story, and All Right Now, A Short Zombie Story. Very scary stuff. There's no profanity, but it's no holds bar on everything else. All kinds of violence, maybe some sexy situations. Who knows? It's the apocalypse, so not too much romance, but some... <laughs> Uh, and then I've also got The Book of David, which is a five-volume uh, serial horror novel. Uh, this is this one's straight for adults. This is uh, in the style of Stephen King. Heavy profanity, heavy violence, heavy everything. Uh, and it escalates each chapter you go. So Book of David, chapter one, the first volume, uh, is free to download as an ebook, so you can get a little taste. Book two is even crazier. Chapter three, crazier than that. By the time we get to chapter five, it's your own fault for not stopping. It gets really crazy. So we got aliens, we got ghosts. Uh, talk a little bit about the government. Who knows what could happen? It's a good time. Uh, coming up here on the show, uh, we're going to take a break for the 4th of July. Um, but we will be back on July 8th with M.G. Hennessy, and then we'll be back uh, on 7-Eleven uh, with author uh, Debbie Daddy. So both of those are going to be amazing shows. Uh, make sure you find your way back after the holiday. Uh, since it's the 4th of July, I'm sure you're feeling patriotic. Uh, do your patriotic duty. I'm not going to get political on you. But as of today, uh, June 25th, 2019, impeachment hearings have still not been started. Contact your representatives. If there's a protest in your area, head out to it. We've got concentration camps in the U.S. This cannot stand. This criminal president must be impeached. Call your senators not to get political. All right, that's it for the news for today. As always, check out middlegradeninja.com for interviews with uh, authors, uh, publishing professionals, like tonight's guest, who I'm very excited to introduce, uh, editor Diana M. Foe. Diana, how are you this evening? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for uh, making the time. Um, I usually ask our guests to start. I'm terrible about summarizing other people's books and other people's biographies. Uh, so if you would, if you just start by uh, telling a esteemed audience a little bit about you and your background in publishing. Sure. Um, I've worked in publishing for about 12 years now, almost 13. Um, and, you know, it's it's pretty much like you know, been the industry I've been involved in since graduating undergrad. So I guess you can probably calculate my age now. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, I acquire for adult, young adult, middle grade and graphic novels, uh, mostly working in science fiction fantasy. Um, I work for Tor Books, which as you may know, 
is one of the major science fiction fantasy publishers in the United States. Um, I also acquire short fiction for Tor.com Publishing, which is like our novella arm of the program. So I figured that's a good start. Yeah. And that is uh, the illustrious Tor office there behind you, correct? <laughs> yes. Um, I, yeah, I was, I was telling Rob earlier that this is like one of our illustrious phone booths. Uh, we actually moved offices. We used to be in the Flatiron uh, for over 30 years, and uh, we moved two weeks ago. Uh, further downtown to it's another historic building it's a larger space uh but unfortunately it's also open planning so <laughs> i figured like instead of like us sitting and you know seeing my really boring looking cubicle you could have this like nice colored room with like the the beautiful like mulberry wine walls so I think it looks fantastic. I am uh, deeply jealous uh, and wish I, I could be there with you in the city, living the dream, working there in big publishing. <laughs> you know, I'm sure we'll get more into that later, but I definitely think um, a lot of people really get excited when they think about, you know, traditional publishing, especially when they think about the big five publishers. And it's definitely, you know, I'm, I'm feel like extremely fortunate to be in the industry for so long, working for like so many prestigious people, you know, you know, basically working with authors that I enjoy every single day. But it's definitely not without challenges, especially living in the most expensive city in the country. <laughs> I've been, uh, you say that, I've been asking uh, as many publishing professionals as I can, um, when uh, do we imagine that, that uh, the big five might start to branch out and maybe move to the Midwest? You could get a real nice office building here in Indianapolis for I'm sure a fraction of the rent uh, of, of what Tor is paying uh, downtown or even if they had more remote editors. So, so what is it that, that still requires everybody to be central in the city or is it just at this point legacy that, that's, uh, that it's always been done that way? It's a lot of different factors. Um, you know, I'm not going to discredit the legacy factor and um, the storied history, huh, storied, uh, that, you know, publishing has in New York City. And, you know, I think a large part of it, you know, is having, you know, access to um, other media giants, you know, being a media giant that publishing is in itself. And especially when it comes to the creative arts, um, you know, a lot of pro projects are really fueled by passion. And, and I think it is a very, um, you know, I would say it's kind of an old school perspective, but it does have legitimacy when you talk about enthusiasm and FaceTime and being able to convey energy in a room or like at an agent meeting or, you know, seeing someone like, you know, in person uh, and being to explain to the sales force, like, this is exactly why, you know, I love this book and that you guys should really be into this too. Um, you know, and it's, I think that has, um, you know, a, hu uh, a huge factor into like why uh, traditional publishing, you know, has stuck around New York for so long. But I do think that overall as an industry, in order to evolve, you'd have to be more flexible uh, in terms of like how you manage your workforce and the opportunities you can provide. And, you know, so that's, that's like a, a smidgen of like all of my thoughts about that. But, you know, I hope that helps. <laughs> Let me uh, let me ask you this. So you're there in person and you get a manuscript uh, that, that comes to you as a mission that you're very excited about. You're like, oh, my gosh, who is this Maurice Broaddus character? What an amazing uh, novel. I, I have to acquire this. Uh, how many people do you have to go out and, and talk to and get on board um, before it's a go? 
Um, well, all publishing houses have a different, you know, acquisitions process. And so what I'm explaining, you know, is very much related to tour. So that's like my caveat right there. So, and, but most, you know, but the other big five has a very, have a very similar structure. And I think like most publishers do, but how formalized, informalized it is, like whether you're talking to like a room full of people, you know, or like five people or just one publisher, um, you know, that might be the big difference in terms of scale. But, you know, in terms of the process as a whole, I think here are like, you know, the basic elements of it. So first, when I see a manuscript, I love it. Um, I have some of my colleagues look at it, they love it. I might show it to like, you know, the VP of, you know, of marketing, I might show it to the, you know, the head of publicity, I might show it to the publishers themselves and be like, hey, I saw this, I think it's amazing. I want you to read it too and make sure it's not just me, you know, suffering from like, you know, submission syndrome. Like you went, you know, when you like read so many submissions and that you that weren't very good. And then suddenly you're like, oh my gosh, is this brilliant? Or is it just like, I need a temperature check. I want to make sure it's just not all, you know, in my head because I read like 30 things I rejected. You know? So like this is a polished shirt and a pile of crap. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, so after I get those second reads, um, then, you know, what I'll pull together, you know, a, an acquisitions packet. Uh, and so for, uh, for that, it's just basically like, you know, I talk a little bit about what the book is about, what the author is about, um, you know, how I see us publishing the book. Like, do I see it as hardcover, trade paperback original? Um, you know, if it's more, if this is a potentially a series book, like if I was given like one manuscript and also a synopsis for like here and here are two sequels, then I'll think about, all right, so what would the theoretical publishing plan be for like the whole trilogy? You know, all this, you know, stuff even before I bring it to acquisitions. Because uh, one of the things that um, I like to do as an editor, and I think uh, we like to emphasize at Tor, is that you know to be able to get books to the readership that needs the books, you know. And so there has to be a lot of forethought, even in the very beginning, about possibilities of how to do that. So I pull up all that stuff together. I also put together what we call a profit and loss statement or a PNL statement, um, and that is a basically a calculation of all the production costs um, that would take to create the book, you know, plus overhead, you know, plus, you know, you factor in the advance that you want to give, the royalties the author would have as part of the deal, like all the stuff together. And because uh, you have to make sure that, you know, the what you think the book will sell will be enough to accommodate for overhead costs. And that's actually one of the, the challenges you often get. And that's when we say that that is when publishing is kind of spinning the roulette wheel and making a, a good estimated guess. Because no one actually knows how much a book will sell right off the gate. It's just your gut, your taste, um, you know, what other people think of the project and also, uh, you know, how much it costs to like pull it all together. And of course, the other element um, is comparison titles are also known as comp titles. Like what kind of book can I compare this book to um, as a, a yardstick of how I think this potentially can sell, you know? So anyways, bunch of numbers, pull them together, see if the calculations come out, you know, in a way that seems reasonably favorable for like us to produce the book. And so then I take all the information and bring it to our acquisitions board.
And, you know, and for Tor, the acquisition board, you know, consists of like the publishers, but also, you know, heads of all, you know, our major departments. Um, and then we have a discussion about, you know, whether they all agree with this plan I created while these, you know, stats are put together. They're like, oh yeah, like this is very believable. I think this is a project that's worth investing in. We should go for it. And, you know, we have all these numbers, you know, uh, you know, to conclude to like, all right, this is how we'll talk to the agent. This is like what we think we can offer from advance, all that stuff. And that is when I can actually go back to the agent and be like, all right, here's our offer. And here's what we can provide for you. And then I go into negotiations with the agent. Um, and if, you know, the author and the agent agree that our offer is favorable, then that is how I bought a book. So very cool. Yes, to unpack there. Uh, so I'm going to ask some questions. I often think of my role on the show, uh, aside from charming, handsome host, uh, as useful idiot, because I ask the questions I'm too dumb to know I, I shouldn't ask. So I apologize if, if one of these comes off as just a little bit rude, um, like asking uh, a fellow salesperson about their numbers. Um, but how often does it happen or, or yeah how often does it happen that you put all that information together for a project and then you get shot down and, and have to go back to an, a new manuscript even even though you love the uh, one but presumably you love the one you just pitched mm -hmm. well i mean you know everyone gets no uh told no on all levels of publishing so it's not just the authors you know it's not just the agents but editors too um i've definitely you know gotten told no after like you know, during the second read state, like, you know, if other people didn't think the manuscript was strong enough, or if I approached the publisher for tentative talks and they looked at it, you know, and they said like, well, like, I don't think, you know, it's as great as you think it is, prove me wrong. And if I can't prove it, you know, if I can't convince them, then the project dies even before I bring it to the board. Um, or, you know, cause usually when we, by the time, like I bring it to acquisitions, I'm like 90% positive that people will be okay with it unless, someone brings up a serious red flag concern that totally kills the whole thing. Um, you know, and that has happened, you know, and it has happened like, you know, in terms of like, oh, I don't know, you know, and usually it's something that's sales-based, you know, if the author has a project and, um, and the, you know, and I really want to buy the project, but they have a poor sales draft that I can't argue myself around to convince them that like, no, we should invest in them because it's a different project, different book, you know, that happens sometimes. Um, and that's only like one example of like, oh, of the various levels of like, when I am told no, before I acquire something, so. And that's even if the, and that's even if the author is writing this book in a new genre, different from whatever book might've flopped in the previous genre? Yeah, it, you know, it really all depends. Cause I think that, um, you know, having an author you know, start in a totally new direction that they previously had, you know, written in before that didn't do as strongly is like a really great way to give an author a soft reboot and promote them to, to a publisher. Um, and so it really all depends on the project, what the new direction is, uh, whether we we can, you know, what's oh, are we checking something? Oh, okay, sorry. And whether, um, you know, whether like the acquisition board believes that the direction is different enough that we can still invest in them. Um, you know, whether there's other buzz around the author since the publication of their previous books that would encourage the publisher to like give them a second chance. Um, you know, and often, you know, 
and oftentimes you you might notice like authors you know being published by one publisher and then they have a totally different project another publisher and when you see cases like that usually it's because you know if for some reason they decide not to continue the working relationship with their previous publisher you know they'll try someone you know a new publisher for 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 their to continue their their career and that's perfectly fine and sometimes when authors choose to do that you know it could be because their sales track was poor and their previous publisher had doubts about the next project even if it was if it was just be different so they had to like move to another publisher entirely who believed in that project and believed they could overcome the sales track and sometimes, you know, and oftentimes it happens. Oftentimes, like, you know, authors, you know, jump houses, um, you know, from project to project uh, because they're looking, you know, for that particular, pro you know, project to find its best home. And sometimes that best home isn't with a publisher who published their previous work that didn't do it strongly. And presumably now that you've got, uh, what, I think about eight years with uh, Tor at this point? Mm -hmm. So uh, a vast amount of experience in, in publishing, plus some jobs uh, prior to, to working with Tor. Um, presumably, you've taken some of those those harder uh, uh, being blindsided by uh, things you didn't see with the book, so that your track record, I, I would assume, is improving at this point when you when you go up to bat with your uh, team. Yeah. So, like you know, and that's that's actually another factor. Um, you know, when when an, when an editor has worked for a long time at a certain um, you know, publisher, like everyone knows their style, everyone knows their taste, you know, and it's, it especially becomes more apparent because you're always doing second reads for your colleagues. So you know that like, hey, I'm reading this other like high fantasy, you know, that my, you know, my colleague is going to acquire, like it's, you know, because I think it's good and I know it's their taste and I just want to affirm their taste, even th even if I might not acquire it myself, I'm like I, I can tell you it's good. You know, even though I won't buy it for myself, like you can buy it. I know that's what you do and you'll do it well because that is part of your list and that is your strength, you know? So having that um, teamwork understanding, you know, between editors, but also between the editors and publisher and the editors and sales force also helps instill that level of confidence. Um, so, you know, like, so you're right, like when, um, when I was a newer editor, um, you know, and started acquiring, it was kind of like, you know, it was more of a chance to prove myself and to prove what kind of taste I have. Uh, because at that point, like, aside from like, you know, my immediate superior who like mentored me or something, like no one knows what I like, you know, none of the sales force, you know, probably have never seen me present my own book at that point, you know, it kind of gives, you know, so for newer editors, um, you know, you, you do build a reputation uh, through the books you acquire, how well they do, um, what kind of books, like, you know, you're attracted to. And Salesforce definitely pays attention. You know, they definitely pay attention. Like, you know, I was at um, a sales meeting, you know, we see, for example, and one of our senior editors was explaining, like, you, you know, like, I, the, how they bought, you know, this, this five book series from an author that's coming out, you know, and there's, it's gonna be published very quickly. Like, you know, many installments with like a little bit of time in between. And they and they had a really short, but to the point presentation, but I said like, all right, this is the third book in the series. Third book in the series usually are the launching points because that, you know, because as we know, that is when the readership has been built up enough 
in encouragement of faith in the author, you know, to help continue a series from that jumping off point. Um, and, you know, and they were right, you know, but I think if they hadn't been working in publishing for over 20 years, they couldn't have, you know, said that and had the Salesforce be like, oh yeah, that's right, that's true, you know? <laughs> I don't think I could have said like the same thing in that same way in less than five minutes um, and be like, all right, that's all I have to say about this author, just trust me about this. And they're like, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> you gotta you gotta have a pretty good reputation to, to pull that one off, I would think. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I had a burning question for you and it was right on the tip of my tongue and now it's gone. Ah. Uh, we've, we've all lost something. Um, I wanted to ask you about, oh, well, you, you mentioned that um, it's going to come down a lot to, to what you like. So let's start there. What what do you like? What kind of, uh, what attracts you to a project? What gets you to say, if not, yes, maybe I'll at least read a partial on this? Um. Well, you know, I have, a, well, I like to think that, like, I have um, a general, very wide taste but also very particular stylistic things that always grab me. And I think that is when you are a newer editor is something you have to build. Um, you know, and you don't build that until you read hundreds and hundreds of submissions <laughs> and hundreds of already published books, you know, and then realize like, you gotta really think to yourself, why do I like this? Can I break it down in a very explainable way? Um, and can I recognize it in its really rough form if I see it in a submission? And that's actually a very, um, it's not an easy skill to hone unless you're very particular about it. Um, I think uh, one of the things I actually tell um, you know, people who want to go into editorial to do, aside from reading a lot, um, is to blog about books, is to review books. Because through the process of reviewing, you're able to like really be honest with yourself about why you like something, why you didn't like something. And once you're on that level, you can um, break it down more and talk about what would you change about a manuscript? What do you think would make it better? And all those elements are, are the layers that add to what editorial taste becomes. Um, so when I'm thinking about for myself, uh, you know, for genre, I definitely know I'm a super big idea person. I really like high concept premises, um, but they ha it has to be something that can also be explainable in 30 seconds or less. Because I come from a sales background, you know? So, you, can <laughs> so, you know, uh, for example, um, two weeks ago, we, I had one of my books published called The Soul Majestic by Ferret Steinmez. Uh, it's an adult science fiction, um, and the pitch is, it's a restaurant in space for fans of Becky Chambers and The Good Place about a teenager who's supposed to be a philosopher, but he can't because he's anxious and he's also gay. But when he wins the best, a free dinner at the best restaurant in the galaxy, his whole life changes. Well, there you go. I mean, that's, that's pretty succinct right there. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it's a skill set that you build up over time. Um, but yeah, but that's exactly the type of story that I I would instantly jump at. It's distinctive. It's kind of quirky. Um, you know, it you know it kind of hints at like a deep dive into something. In this one, it's actually it's as you could probably suspect, it's like five star cuisine. And half the book talks about how to cook other fancy food, and it's very absorbing and it's beautifully written. 
but it's also a science fiction story. Um, you know, and it has this whole undercurrent of sociopolitical critique about, you know, about class and the meaning of labor and the and taking down the one percent. But it's all told in a very fluffy, lighthearted manner that really punches you in the gut at the very end. Um, and so, you know, so that's like the other element that I'm really intrigued by with submissions. Like if it has some sort of, you know, a socio-political question that it poses, if it talks about how um, society and technology relate to each other, um, how people relate to science, um, how, uh, you know, a certain fantasy element, you know, like magic could, you know, influence something like gender roles. Um, you know, all those, elements as well really attract me to a manuscript. Um, yeah, I, I think that's like the nutshell version of what my taste is, aside from actually doing a deep dive into like every single subgenre that I acquire for and what I like and don't like about it. <laughs> oh, I have no doubt there are listeners who would love it if we if we did nothing else. <laughs> well, uh, let me ask you this then. If you've got a, a book that, that has that high concept going in, sounds amazing, like, oh my God, we've got Banneker Bones, we've got some giant robot bees. This, this sounds like it's going to be a winner. Uh, what is it that would turn you off? What usually um, uh, calls the whole thing off as, as you're reading? And uh, yeah. Yeah, like for me, um, there has to be an element of voice um, at what stops me um, in a lot of manuscripts actually is that I'm reading it and it might be a really interesting premise um, or it might have, you know, a very like entertaining set of characters or it might be a genre that I absolutely love usually, but the writing's flat. Like, and, it, and that's a really hard uh, thing to explain like what a writer's voice is. Um, but if I, you know, it's kind of like, I guess the best comparison is that when you watch a television show and you know there's certain directorial choices are being made on screen or like something about, you know, the lighting or the color, you know, palette they choose or what kind of characters are on screen and why they're there and what they're doing, you know, all those like elements that you see, you know, visually, I would want to be able to also see visually in my head when I'm reading a manuscript. And if that, you know, cinematic confidence is not in, you know, in the writing, I just can't match onto it. And I think that's that's more than anything else why I reject a manuscript is that when I feel like the voice is not making it or or I get bored. You know, as soon as like I stop reading and I can't pick it up again because I have no motivation to, then like, all right, it's just it's an automatic pass. Well, sure, yeah. If you're not motivated to read it, it's hard to imagine how the readers you would position it to uh, would want to continue reading it. So that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, you want to have description. You want to make sure you're painting a picture uh, for the reader. Um, how much, uh, what, what's the line, or does it vary? I'm sure it does vary from project to project, but just in general, um, what's a good rule in terms of how, how to err on the side of enough description without going too much. Like, for example, there's a House in the Witching Hour um, by uh, Anne Rice that I, I swear to this day I can still see in my head because it was just so so ridiculously detailed that there were blueprints in, in the back of that book uh, before the end. So where is that line or is it better just to put too much and then pull back later? Um, it all depends. Cause I do think uh, level of description changes depending on what kind of genre you're writing and what kind of market you're writing for. Like for example, 
Um, there is a difference between, as you know, like writing for middle grade, writing for an adult, writing for adult, um, you know, and so that, so that is something that I think about a lot, actually, when I look at manuscripts, especially with something that's pitched me like, oh, it's adult YA crossover. And I'd be like, is it really? You know, are you just saying that because YA is super popular right now? You know? Um, so it, it, it does have a certain um, level of writing that fits the, the market uh, that, you know, that is a defining feature. Um, so, so when it comes to like description, you know, you know, like for example, like if if I were reading an adult literary science fiction or fantasy book, then I do expect a certain level of description that's different than if I were reading, you know, even like a literary YA book or a literary middle grade book. Um, no, so it really it's really really subjective. That makes sense. Right. Um, and what uh, what are the most common mistakes that you routinely see authors make that you that lets you know just right off the bat oh I'm dealing with an amateur come back in a year or two when you've been doing this a little bit longer? Um, like what like what do you mean by? Is there anything you... that like in the first fifty pages that you might see repeated some some things you've seen in enough submissions now that make you go oh this isn't going to be a strongly written uh, piece despite the initial promise or is right. there something? Um, I think, you know, I, I think, again, it, it comes down to the level of writing and the confidence in the storytelling, but also, and this is actually interesting because I think the big difference between uh, writing for genre and writing for literary um, is the use and handling of tropes. And I think that um, the assumption is that tropes are bad, that you should avoid all tropes, whatever possible, but as a genre editor, like, you know, there are certain tropes that I love. There are certain, like, like subgenres, there are certain subgenres that I love. Um, and I think a skilled writer knows how to handle tropes well, whether they subvert them, whether they do a fresh take on them, whether they know exactly how tropey they sound, but that's the whole point of the book. And the writing is just so charming, you're just gonna go along with it. Like, you know, those are, in, that actually also ties into a writer's voice. Um, you know, and so I think that is usually like a big signal to me. Um, so if I'm reading like a historical fantasy and it's, you know, it's the farm boy who like goes into like, you know, the big city and realizes that he's the chosen one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It could come off as really like generic and boring or it could be brilliant depending on, well, what if, this you know young boy, you know, um, is all is a farm boy, but um, he didn't come to the city because he was a chosen one. He came to the city because he was the best friend who thought he was a he was a chosen one. And then a best friend gets killed twenty pages into the manuscript, and then he's like, "Oh, what am I doing here? I now have this like quest I never expected I was supposed to do." You know, something like that. So, so take the familiar trope and just kind of flip it on its uh, head a little bit. Right. 
Makes sense to me. And then I wanted to make sure. Oh, I wanted to ask you about uh, Maria Miranda Cruz. Uh, mm-hmm. I promised her that I would. Uh, last week, we talked uh, a little bit about uh, your hand in editing uh, Everlasting Nora. And then mm-hmm. I promised that this week we would ask you uh, your perspective and what that uh, process was like and what drew you to that book initially, since that's something that hopefully the uh, all of uh, esteemed audiences had a week to go out and buy and read at this point. Oh, yeah. Great. Um yeah, and uh, just you know, I did not listen uh, to Marie's show yet, so I didn't. I didn't see what she said. <laughs> All positive things. She was. She was. She was very excited to work with that. Uh, to have worked with you, and she. She let us know that she had been filled with dread about the idea of an editor, and you immediately made put her at ease, and that your suggestions made the book genuinely better. Oh, thanks. Well, that's good to know. That's a good jumping off point. <laughs> Um, so now you are welcome to trash her just because she said nice things. That doesn't. <laughs> she's she's a delight. She's like an absolute delight. Like, you know, uh, one of the general, um, you know, blessings I have in my job is that I get to choose exactly who I work with. <laughs> and so, and I've been also really lucky that I've been able to work with people who are extremely talented, but also generally, you know, kind, considerate thoughtful, supportive people. And Maria is definitely one of them. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, her book was like totally out of the blue for me because I, you know, I usually, you know, until, until I bought Everlasting Nora, I was just strictly a genre editor, you know? Um, I was at Book Expo America and her agent pitched me like all her projects and she had a PowerPoint, you know, it's like, and she was just going through like, so we went like over all of her science fiction fantasy. And then Marie's book was like stuck, you know, it, you know, you know, in the middle grade section after it. And one of, um, and her slide was a picture from Manila's North Cemetery. And as Marie, you know, has probably already explained, like it's a real community in the Philippines. Um, these are actual people um, who live uh, in mausoleums. And just seeing that picture, what just, you know, it was so um, amazing. Like not because of just like the location and all that stuff, but just the brightness of the colors, um, just like the lighting. It was a beautiful picture of unexpected joy in what I realized was in the middle of a cemetery. Uh, and I'm like, you know, I asked agent, tell me more about this book. I have no idea what this is. And so she gave me her elevator pitch, um, you know, and it, the book, the project had a different name back then. It was just called Cemetery City. Um, and I was like, all right, well, I'll take these four, you know, science fiction fantasy submissions you just pitched me and I'll take a look at Cemetery City uh, because I am immediately intrigued, you know, and I like stayed up until like one o'clock in the morning reading that book. Uh, when I was finished, I was like, I have to figure out how I'm going to buy this. I have no idea how I'm going to buy this because I've never bought contemporary fiction in middle grade before, but I think this has a lot of potential. And I actually rejected all the other <laughs> things I requested from that agent. <laughs> so it was a sign. It was a sign. Um, well, she still had to walk away feeling pretty good after that. Right, right. Uh, and it was, yeah, it's, you know, it's such a, it was, it's been, it was such a great editorial process. Um, you know, working with her because Marie is just so, she works so hard. She's so generous. Um, she's so receptive. Uh, we had really great conversations, we, you know, um, and that project in particular was actually like 
one of the longest editorial processes I've had so far with a project. Um, you know, we went through like four or five drafts of that book. Um, and usually I do too. <laughs> so, you know, just because it's like there is so much that I want, they know that I want to do with it. And that we had so many conversations. We had sensitivity readers look at it. We like, you know, we had several different like really heavy restructural edits for that book. Um, you know, and I think it's also like really a credit to the publisher of Starscape when I presented it to her um, because she read the manuscript and she said like, you know, I think like it's very interesting, um, but I'm not sure, you know, if it's strong enough. And I convinced her, no, we have to buy this. If we buy this, I will edit it, you know, with, you know, with Marie until it becomes a gem. And then like, I'll get a lot of like critical acclaim. And that's what I did. So I was like, ta-da, I proved myself, yay. Well, <laughs> like, yeah. I, I very much enjoyed the book. And I know that the uh, esteemed audience who's, who was all read it at this point did as well. Great, you. Uh, and um, you mentioned sensitivity readers. She she talked a little bit about that as well. Um, mm -hmm. What do sensitivity readers bring to a project, uh, and how do you go about finding them for a given project? Okay, so um, sensitivity readers are basically like cultural consultants, um, and actually some of them prefer to be called cultural consultants because it is exactly what they do. They look at a project um, usually because they have expertise. You know, you know, in you know certain types of representation or certain types of culture, community, um, you know, and they you know give their critique, you know, about whether things are culturally accurate, whether language choices are appropriate, uh, whether like situations that happen to the characters in the book concerning this cultural element isn't actually a gross stereotype or a harmful, you know, damaging one. Um, so they do, you know, they, they do a ton of work, um, and, you know, and granted, like, Marie, um, you know, grew up, you know, in the Philippines, she's Filipino-American, she knows a community, you know, you know, I'm also, like, a Vietnamese-American, so I have, like, some understanding of, like, Asian-American diaspora, um, but even in that case, you know, even, you know, where the book could have been pitched as own voices, you know, I said, no, we have to have a sensitivity reader because there are so many elements that we talk about. We talk about poverty, we talk about class, um, you know, and we also talk about, you know, contemporary Manila, which may be different from, you know, the Philippines that Marie grew up in when she was a younger person. So we have to make sure like all those elements are also accurate to the book. Um, so that's why we got readers for it. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to ask you about something you had done earlier in your career. You had been an international marketing assistant uh, mm -hmm. for Hachette. So I was just curious what that would have taught you about marketing that you've been able to, to carry on with you and, and hopefully still practice today. Yeah. Um, you know, I I love that job. It was, uh, it was something I didn't expect to fall into until I fell into it. I was just trying to get my foot in the door of publishing. Um, and it really taught me a lot of um, foundational skills when it comes to understanding the industry. It was nice because it was international um, that it gave me a perspective of the holistic side of publishing because I worked with all the departments. You know, I worked with editorial, I worked with publicity, you know, I worked with sales accounts all around the globe. Um, you know, at, you know, at, 
as well as marketing, obviously. And so it really gave me perspective about um, how, what the life cycle of a book is, which I might have not have known as well if I start off in editorial. Um, it also gave me, you know, the pers it really honed what I wanted to do with books. Uh, and it really taught, and one of the things that it taught me that I carried throughout my career was uh, the most important role that you would have is, you know, uh, as working on a book is to make sure it finds its readership. And that readership doesn't necessarily mean it's like, you know, books that you like. It doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, it's books that have quote unquote, like mass appeal. Um, but it has to be able to find the readership that needs to have that book, uh, you know, and that, you know, and to be able to position a book to find it the right market and the right audience is something that I've carried throughout my career. And as an editor, it's super useful because when I look at submissions, you know, I am already thinking about what's the audience for this book. I like the book. That's fine. But how can you convince other people to like it, too? Like, what, what can I go to the publisher and say, like, all right, you know, not only are these the comp titles, but you should look at the demographics, you know, of this community in the United States, the growing readership, you know, the, the statistics about disposable income, you know, like what all these other factors, you know, will prove that a readership for this book exists. And if the book is available, they will buy it. That was actually one of the reasons I had for buying um, Everlasting Door in the first place. Like I, you know, I came in with a bunch of statistics about the Filipino American community in the United States, um, and you know the high likelihood that it will that they are looking for more books that represent them because there's so many of them in the United States, and the outcome of books that are published, you know, about Filipinos are so marginally small in comparison that they will grab that book. But not only that but it has wider appeal for school and libraries because it talks about you know young people dealing with very difficult subjects in a light manner it has a really intriguing hook because you know like cemeteries they're they're seen in the us as really as really scary but in this place it was your home what does that mean it talks about the the, uh, the elements of found family uh and the importance of being able to help each other and how those and how like supportive communities, you know, are really like one of the backbone themes you see again and again in the middle grade. Um, so like all that really helped by that book in particular, but I wouldn't have been able to narrow down my thought process that in that granular level if I didn't have the marketing experience to really think about who would want to read this book and why. And then also to, to to be armed with the information to convince other people that you did know that there were that there were enough folks out there, which obviously hadn't 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 happened. I Marie told us one of her main motivations uh, in writing the book in the first place was going to the bookstore and not seeing those uh, books about Filipino uh, children uh, available uh, for for anyone who who needs to read them. Right. So. And that's uh, kind of a big thing we've been uh, harping on the show, and I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, uh, but we had uh, Lamar Giles on uh, a few episodes back. We're seeking on the back catalog, uh, and he was one of the founders of We Need Diverse Books, and the whole reason that organization exists is because we need diverse books, and traditional publishers were not supplying them. So obviously... Um, you're doing uh, your part. You've got Marie, you've got many other uh, diverse books that you're editing and, and, and selecting. 
what are you seeing Tor do specifically, and what are you seeing other publishers do to begin to correct this wrong that's that, that's been in place for so long? Um, I think I've been seeing a lot of um, you know companies across the board address representation in different ways, and you know. On, on the reader side, you see it through, again through programs like We Meet Diverse Books. Uh, you know, you see it by um, you know publishers making like large you know announcements that they are acquiring. You know, like you know certain authors from underserved communities. Um, from internally, like we've also changed our hiring practices, for example, to reflect uh, more inclusive language. You know, because a lot of um, you know, one of the barriers I think marginalized people face is not only to have the opportunity to get their voice out there, but just to know that they're encouraged to be there, you know, that it's not just, um, you know, lip service. And once you get in, you don't get the support that you need. Um, and I think that element is something that the publishing industry is currently working on. I, when uh, when diverse books was you know founded, um, the concerns were author concerns, and they were talking about how can we get more authors published. Um, and I think publishers are paying attention to that, but I also believe that in order for like lasting institutional change to happen, it also has to happen internally as well. You have to have your staff be as representative as the books you want to produce, um, because sometimes they might be the only people who can really find the stories that are worth telling um, or be able to you know, assess the books in ways that um, they would only understand through their lived experiences to, you know, to, to be able to assess a manuscript correctly. Because um, you know, you know, as you may have heard, like a lot of um, you know, the books that have been criticized in Kidlet for several years now are usually books that were acquired by editors who didn't have the experience or didn't have, you know, their or didn't do their due diligence in order to get that experience um, to be able to shepherd a project through publication. And that was when you, when you find like the egregious mistakes, that's when you find the cultural appropriation, that's when you find like, you know, terrible stereotypes that, you know, are red flags to readers with that experience, but may have not been, you know, been seen by anyone else because they didn't realize there was a problem. Um, so, so I think that's really like the next step in the representation conversation is that how can we transform the industry um, to be more internally inclusive uh, and retain that talent. Makes sense to me. So it sounds like uh, we're seeing some headway being made, still a lot, long way to go yet. Um, and let me ask you just to, to help demystify the uh, editing process or yeah, yeah, the role of the editor a little bit. What does your uh, day look like? What does your typical work week look like? Uh, is it, are you working over the weekend as well on average? And, and how many hours are you putting in a day and what are you, how are you feeling? Um, you know, it's like for me in general, like uh, my typical day can be a range of anything and everything that has to do with a book through the life cycle, uh, you know. Um, you know for, for example, like today, I am waiting to hear back on an offer I made yesterday, <laughs> you know, for, for, you know, and hopefully I'll hear positive, you know. Uh, but I also like wrote like cover concepts for books that are coming out um, in fall of 2020. 
And then I was reading high priority manuscript that I know that, you know, you know, could be could have movement at another publisher. Um, and so I have to be able to like, oh, I got to read this quickly to see if I want to put another offer for this. Um, and I'm also working on, you know, an editorial letter for an adult, you know, uh, fantasy book as well. So, um, and I also had a lunch meeting with a book scout where we talked about like what they were looking at in Hollywood and what kind of IP that they want to acquire and what kind of project that I'm working on would be of their interest. So like that is just one day and you know, and every single day of my week will be drastically different from each other. But, you know, and right now I have a list of about 15 authors. Um, not all of them are actively writing, but you know, I am definitely juggling about, you know, four or five, you know, books at various stages of their, you know, of their, you know, production process as well. So it's just a lot of things happening all the time. <laughs> So you can't just concentrate on one book, make your changes, wait for the author to get back to you, and then and then continue going with that book. Just doesn't doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. I'm probably um, you know at any given day I'm corresponding of at least like three or four authors about whatever questions they have about their book. Um, so yeah, so that's why you know you may have heard about like the stereotype of, about like the editors editing you know late hours all the time, or the fact that you know you know you know, a common like assumption about editorials that like, oh, you must be reading all the time. And I'm like, yes, I'm reading all the time, but I'm not necessarily reading during my work hours. Like during my work hours, I'm like, you know, doing everything I've told you, uh, plus going to other meetings, you know, plus, you know, doing um, other editorial, like, you know, tasks, whether it's, you know, pulling together like materials for foreign rights agents um, or writing copy, you know, uh, to sell books for like upcoming seasons um, or anything like that. So a lot of my submissions reading, you know, I do try to have dedicated days where I do not answer email. <laughs> I just like sit there and like read a bunch of submissions, um, you know, but, you know, but other than that, then it's just like, oh, reading at home or reading over the weekend or like reading on the subway. No, all, you know, reading all the time. <laughs> Just uh, whenever, whenever you're you're not actively doing something else, that's time to sneak in some reading. And are you a very fast reader? Uh, can you turn off your editor brain and, and just read for enjoyment the first time through, or you do you go slow and 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 constantly breaking apart sentences? Um, I'm a fast reader when it comes to submissions because the the first read is the read that you love, you know, because that's that love that's going to actually fuel you to buy the book. And if I keep having, as I said before, like if I stop because I'm bored or if I stop because I keep seeing um, mistakes that kind of pull me out of the reading experience, then I know it's not gonna be a book that flies with me. Um, you know, and so, uh, yeah, so the, the submission read is, you know, is always like the, the most passion driven read actually, aside from like, now I'm going to break this book down and do line edits, <laughs> but that's an entirely different type of passion. <laughs> Roll up your sleeves and, and get creative. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, a lot of, uh, uh, one, one nice thing about having had uh, several publishing professionals on the show is I'm sure others are, are listening uh, currently. Uh, and so for the agents out there, for the people that are doing the submissions, uh, and, and of course for the authors who are, who are doing uh, unagented submissions, um, 
what kind of information can they provide you with beyond the initial query to arm you when you're going to go and you're going to pitch the book? Um, how much of your homework can they hopefully do for you ahead of time to make things easy, or can they? Um, I think um, I've definitely gotten like a range of different materials from authors and agents when it comes to visions. Um, so, you know, I, I have seen like, you know, agents pull together like a little packet where, you know, they would, you know, pull up comp titles, like, you know, pull up like the audience for whatever or assemble what the author platform would be like, what is their social media presence? What are their professional contacts? All that stuff. Like that is definitely helpful. And that saves me a lot of legwork. Um, how, how heavily does that factor in on your initial decision, social media and, and the rest? I mean, it really all comes down to the read. Um, you know, there, you know, that's, it's really, it's, it could be nice to know that author has a certain platform, but I think that's more important for nonfiction than fiction. Um, you know, but it does help to know that like, hey, this is a very popular short story, you know, author, and this is the debut novel. Um, and, you know, that what I would also consider a platform outside of social media, it, you know, because, you know, it shows me like three things. Uh, it shows me one, that they're professional enough to follow directions. That is how they got published, you know, for their short fiction in the first place. <laughs> That's important. Uh, you know, two, um, you know, someone else likes them, another editor likes them. So, that it, you know, and especially if they're published, you know, in certain publications that I'm a big fan of, like, hey, if I know that people at Uncanny Magazine really love this author, like, and we, we share common tastes, like, I will give this author a chance, you know, if they have a longer project, you know, for example. Um, and, uh, and three, it also shows that they have a fan base. If they get published multiple times in short fiction, you know, it's a sign for me that like not only are they professional and other pro professional editors like them, but that they have enough of a presence in the reading world that the casual sci-fi fan may have heard of their name already. And that only helps me. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And then um, uh, back to from the uh, from the author perspective, um, has it how I'm sure over eight years with Tor, it, it probably has happened. Uh, if you can give us an example without without revealing anybody's name or anything else, uh, where you were on board with the manuscript, you you were excited, you had all the information, and then something that the author did either online or in in person over the phone, some sort of bad author behavior that, that blew the whole thing. Because uh, I'd love to give that information out for authors so they know what not to do. Um, well, I'm lucky not to have that sort of horror story. <laughs> I can knock on wood. Like, I'm sure, like, every editor will get that, know that project. But I think especially if it's that early on in the process, like, even before, like, I bought something, um, you know, that instantly would be a red flag. Be like, well, if, you know, if, like, an author, you know, starts, like, espousing hateful views, uh, you know, online, that would definitely impact whether I want to work with them personally. Because as I said before, like I have the honor of being able to choose every single person that I work with. Um, and it's, you know, and it's definitely something I do not take for granted. Uh, and also, you know, writing is a creative, you know, endeavor. Editing is a creative endeavor. What I'm going into is, um, you know, what can be a very deeply interpersonal artistic relationship with, you know, another professional. And, um, 
And if that is going to be difficult on any sort of level, um, that could, you know, interfere with the creative process or the professional process, um, then, you know, there, there are plenty of other authors that I can work with. You know, there are a lot of fish in the sea. So, Unfortunately, stop at other authors. <laughs> Um, and then I, I, I would kick my own butt if we got through this whole conversation. I didn't ask you about the Wheel of Time. Uh, what's, been your, what's been your involvement with the Wheel of Time? So, yes, so the, the Wheel of Time, um, for those who aren't familiar with it, um, is one of like Tor's best-selling series. Um, you know, I am currently the in-house editor for it, the actual editor, Harriet McDougall, um, who is also Robert Jordan's widow, actually. She was the one who found him. Um, you know, it, it, and um, I work with, with Harriet and the rest of the people at the Robert Jordan Estate, uh, you know, in, um, in any work that continues the franchise. So right now at the moment, like one of our, you know, huge books coming out this fall is War of the Altai, which is Robert Jordan's previously unpublished novel um, that like there's... Uh, I think you can, I think we posted online somewhere, like the whole backstory about why it was unpublished, but it was totally like a weird contractual like thing. It wasn't because the book was bad. It was just, you know, it was a case where, um, where he wrote the first novel and that's how he got, you know, you know, editorial attention, agent attention. But then he started writing like all of these um, like historical novels and those historical novels got published first. Um, and because, you know, and it was because of that and the publisher at the time, like didn't want to change his brand because they're selling really well. Like, why would we take a risk in publishing him in a tiny direction? He's already doing so well for this one. So we're just going to like not publish this, but keep it on the shelf. So, we, you know, and, I, and yeah, that happens, you know, and, you know, and that's what happened to this book. Um, you suggest that a publisher somewhere has made a bad call. <laughs> yeah you know it's uh so it's funny to like you know and, and we're really happy that you know this book is going to be out in the world we think that you know fans of wheel of time you know um and of robert jordan will definitely love you know to take a look at his early work um you know it does you know have still have like literary merit even though you know the wheel of time was written later and of course he had matured his writing style by then but you can definitely you know, for really both of hardcore fans and for both people who are new to his work, I think it'll be a great entry point for readers. And how does the uh, process differ? Is it, is it easier if the author isn't, uh, isn't there to have as much input uh, or is it more a matter of curation and, and making sure uh, that you're, you're, you're doing everything you can to proceed as though uh, Mr. Jordan were there and obviously uh, his widow has, has quite a bit of input as well? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, for me, um, I I work more of like a support position for the book because it's definitely Harriet. It's like she she's always been his editor, um, you know, throughout their entire lives. So it was a no brainer that like when there's, you know, she and Tom Doherty uh, decide together that now is the right time to publish this book. You no, know, you know, she, you know, had it, it had already been edited, too, first of all. Like, so that helped. <laughs> That's <laughs> a different record. Right. So it was a matter of like going back uh, and fine tuning a couple of elements that might, you know, have been a bit dated, you know, by today's standards, um, you know, streamlining like, some of the copy edits that might have not gone through, you know, previous drafts. 
Um, and just like, you know, it's basically Harry and Tom working together to, you know, polish it up before putting it out. So. Diane, I could talk to you all night because uh, I know you just have a wealth of information and so many things you could reveal to us that I've just been too dumb to ask, um, if only. Uh, but I know you've got a train to catch and it's a it's a privilege to talk with you. So I want to make sure that we are um, um, uh, respectful of your time. Uh, so I'll just take all those questions that I should have asked and didn't and dispel them down to one last question. Uh, and that question is, if there was one piece of advice you could give to all of the authors who might be watching or listening, uh, that they could follow and, and their careers would be made better uh, and their writing would be made better, what would that one piece of advice be? Um, hmm. Yeah, that's hard because there's like so much I could like, you're right. So I could go on and on about various Feel free to come up with five answers. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I guess like the big thing is don't be discouraged. Uh, I know writing can be a lonely business. Um, I know your authors are told no a lot. Um, you know, I understand that it could take years to even find agent representation. Um, uh, yeah, but it's one of those things that, you know, writing is a creative passion. Um, you know, and write, but writing can also be a business. And I also want to, you know, encourage authors to think really hard about where they want their writing to go, um, be realistic about how they want to get there, um, and be professional, you know? Um, uh, and I think, you know, and, and, and above all, don't be discouraged uh, because it's a long process. But I think people who are really uh, determined you know, to and realistic about their goals will be able to achieve them. Makes sense. If uh, if only if only every author could uh, hear you and, and heed your advice, we'd we'd be in good shape. Uh, and I'm so disappointed we we didn't have time to talk about steampunk, but I know you've got a whole <laughs> website uh, online where people can read everything they ever want to know about steampunk and more. Where can a steamed reader or esteemed audience find you online uh, and connect with you? Right. So, um, so my steam, you know, my steampunk site, if people are super curious, is beyondvictoriana.com. It's about multicultural steampunk. Um, I'm not as active on it as I used to be, but there's a wealth of archives that I definitely encourage people to look into. Um, so, but where else you can find me online? Uh, I have uh, Twitter. Uh, it's just writer syndrome, one word. Um, I have Instagram, which is diana.m.fo. And you can follow me there as well. I, of course, am on Twitter as MG Ninja. You can always find me at middlegradeninja.com. Head on there. You might have to read some of the interviews with uh, publishing professionals and all of your favorite authors, but they're well worth the read. And there's plenty of great episodes in the archives if you're missing me here over the 4th of July. Uh, make sure you download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Or if you're not into the middle grade, I don't know why you're listening to the show, uh, but you prefer adult horror, check out the first chapter of the Book of David or check out both. Why not? They're free. Um, don't forget to contact your representatives, demand impeachment inquiries, head to a protest, stand up for your country. That's what the 4th of July is all about. And find yourself back here on July 8th. Um, we'll be talking with author M.G. Hennessy. You know, that's going to be a wonderful episode. Uh, Diana, thanks again for, for making the time to do this at the end of a long day uh, with more uh, to be done yet uh, before before you can sleep, I'm sure. 
Um, really appreciate you you making the time and, and you're, you're, you're sharing your, your information with the audience. This has just been a, a wonderful piece of content that I know I'm going to go back and I'm going to listen to uh, multiple times to, to grok its fullness. Mm -hmm. uh, I have been asking our guests to sign us off. Uh, and our sign-off phrase is the very ninja-like, hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? So wait, is it hi-ya and what have you? Or hi-ya and that's something I make up? Ah, uh, you know what, your choice. Okay. <laughs> All right, so I will say hi-ya, fellow readers, and thanks for being here.